Greetings, friends. Weston Akamura from Blogworks Macro in Tokyo. It's Friday, April 14, 2023 at Asia Markets Close. Welcome to the Market Depth Podcast, bringing you global market commentary and analysis from the Asia-Pacific trading session so that you know what happened overnight. Today, we will take a look back at this week, uh, this week in which we saw U.S. CPI and PPI coming in, potentially, you know, the inflation picture stabilizing in the United States, um, potentially the, the, the banking crisis also uh, kind of stabilizing as well with the latest uh, BTFD lending facility data. Um, we even have sort of data out of China supporting the reopening theme and all this, right? So the question is, have we done it? Have we soft landed? Or are we merely landing the plane in the eye of a storm? Well, let's just take a look at the global picture um, through the lens of Asia uh, via the World Bank and IMF spring meetings, as well as data out of China. Um, in addition to that, I'm going to touch uh, quickly on SoftBank and their divesting their, their Alibaba stake. And then finally, I'm just going to give a quick update of my thoughts on Warren Buffett's mysterious trip to Tokyo this week and what it might signal for the critical April uh, Bank of Japan meeting. Uh, it's coming up in about two weeks. So first, let's talk about the IMF and World Bank spring meetings uh, that were underway this week in D.C., Washington, D.C. So here's just a few key headlines to highlight out of that. The IMF put out their projections for global growth. And they were very gloomy, uh, such that a lot of the kind of individual countries, uh, you know, the central bank heads and the finance ministers that were also kind of in attendance, they're like pushing back against the IMF figures um, with their own respective less bearish outlooks. The IMF is calling for sub 3% global growth this year. Okay, that's down from last year's 3.4%. So according to the IMF uh, managing director, Quote, this is our lowest medium-term growth forecast since 1990 and well below the average of 3.8% for the past two decades. Okay, so again, gloomy, but, you know, questioned, I suppose. Now, with that said, here's a headline that pops out. More than 70% of global growth this year will come from Asia, uh, of which India and China together will contribute to half of global growth this year. Now, that's not to say that Asia is not without its problems, according to the IMF. Um, of course, it has many headwinds. But this IMF projection in which Asia will contribute to more than 70% of total global growth for the year. Here's what I'll say on that, okay? So, look, we can dispute or embrace that 70% figure all, you know, all we want to. It doesn't really matter to me either way. The point I want to make is that clearly Asia is a region of major global economic consequence. And yet the amount of coverage that the Western financial media and kind of broader commentary out there um, that's, that's put on Asia, be it about markets or just developments born out of, out of Asia, you know, that ratio of coverage, that lack of coverage is just absolutely nowhere near proportionate um, to the gravity and the scale uh, and the importance that the region has and the impact that the region has on global macro and on markets. Um, and that's exactly why this podcast exists. Uh, I've said this before, and I'll say it again. Market depth is not about investing in Asia. It is about informing global investors of all things that impact global markets that stem from Asia or are tied to things that are happening out of this third of the planet where every trading day begins. Okay. Now, I know me saying this is kind of pointless because I'm preaching to the choir, right? If you're watching me say this right now, you're 
obviously already aware of all this. But what I do want to say is I encourage you to spread the word about what we do here on Market Depth, what we focus on, why we focus on it, um, to all the many who just simply don't know that they're not getting you know, passive exposure and, and information to a major critical region, um, and they need to be aware, okay? Second highlight point out of the IMF spring meetings. So Bank of Japan Governor Ueda, who is wrapping up his very first week on the job, he held a press conference, and the, the transcript was only, like, released in Japanese. Um, but here's a quote that, you know, that he said that I, that I want to flag. It's very noteworthy. So the, a question was posed to him, basically saying, with regards to monetary policy tightening, right? So Europe and the United States, they were behind the curve. They had fallen behind the curve, and that essentially led to the current inflation and financial instability that we have, right? So as Japan, now with a three-handle on CPI, you know, how much do you see the risk of Japan also falling behind the curve and not tightening soon enough, Governor Ueda? Right. And then Ueda said, and I'm paraphrasing here, but basically, basically what he said was, so if we compare the risk of inflation remaining above 2% for a long time, which would be problematic, versus the risk of inflation falling below 2% and staying there, um, and thereby making that you know, achievement of the price target more difficult to do, and all those various costs associated with the below 2% uh, risk, of those two, it would be far better and more appropriate to focus on monetary policy on the latter problem. In other words, in other words, Uweta is saying that falling behind the curve or essentially getting into the trouble that the Fed and the ECB and various other central banks are currently facing problematic as it may be, that is less of a problem than for Japan to slip back into a sub 2% inflation sort of regime as it's been stuck in. So he would rather over ease than tighten too fast. So take that how you will. Look again, I don't know this guy, you know, in this role, nobody does yet, right? So I don't know if he's being like a genuine Kuroda 2.0 as he's been acting, you know, so far in his his early days of his tenure, or if he's just doing all this, if he's setting all this up for like a major first and only one chance of a policy shock coming in two weeks, and we will find out. But the way he framed that kind of easing message, something new, like a, a way that I have never heard, you know, Kuroda kind of frame it before. So something worth flagging. All right, and then last quick point out of the IMF spring meetings. Apparently, Fed Chair Powell and the PBOC head Yigang apparently met and had a one-on-one -on -one talk. And they did so. This is the first time they did this since 2020. Now, what they talked about, nobody knows. The PBOC website, you know, it only has this like this one line saying that they talked one-on-one. -on -one. So I don't know what it means, but it definitely means something. But just something else to flag to you. Okay, now speaking of China, China trade data came out yesterday um, and showed a huge surprise in exports to the upside. So exports were uh, up almost 15% year-over-year versus the expectations of a 7% decline. 15% gain year-over-year versus a 7% decline in expe uh, for expectations. Now, why do we care about China export data? Because again, it's not just about China, okay? China exports can be seen as a measure of overseas global demand. So we see huge jumps to, uh, of, of exports out of China to Southeast Asia and then also to Europe. And this is largely due to factories in China reopening. And so therefore, it's suggesting 
that global growth might be, you know, better than expected. So again, it's another like kind of conflicting data point. Um, but here's how to digest this, like sp specifically this kind of huge unexpected beat in exports. So basically factory reopenings, that that was basically pent up from January and February of this year in China when COVID was like ripping through the country. So like thereafter, what we saw was just a concentrated spike in March. So this is policy volatility reflected as data volatility. And this is what comes of having a top-down controlled economy that can be flicked on and off like a, like a switch. And this is what makes forecasting China macro data not only difficult, but sometimes, you know, it could be dangerous to be overly confident and relying upon one's macro analysis of, of China and based on data, um, looking out for even like the near to, to midterm, okay? Because things like business cycles and models, you can't just kind of equally copy and paste and apply to both like a capitalist and state control economies all the same, blindly, right? And that's what a lot of people do. And then one more point on China, so LVMH, the stock is ripping on earnings that were reported yesterday, blowout earnings. And a lot of that was due to basically demand from China. As we know, LVMH is like upper end luxury goods and, and whatnot, right? So China is not a monolith, just like any other country uh, is not a monolith. There are, there's huge like income inequality and disparities within China as well. So you could have sectors of the population, the wealthy, that are doing well and that are consuming um, and their consumption is is very healthy and therefore reflected in things like LVMH earnings. And at the same time, you could have the bulk of the population not, you know, and so it's kind of an uneven recovery. It's really no different from other Western societies and, and, and countries, right? It's income inequality. So you can't look at it as a monolith. It's very possible to have like two sets of conflicting data of consumption, but they can both happen simultaneously because they're not measuring the same cohort of people. Okay, and I just want to comment quickly on SoftBank. So FT reported uh, yesterday that SoftBank um, is going to sell down basically like almost all of the like, the remaining holdings it has left of Alibaba, which is huge because, you know, Alibaba was at one point SoftBank's best investment. Um, and so SoftBank is doing this to raise cash. Now, what we saw in the markets where it was Alibaba's stock dropped sharply, as you'd expect, um, as much as 5%. Um, and then that same day, SoftBank was more or less flat on the day. So as far as like that, that market reaction, I think that it should really be the other way around, right? In other words, Alibaba getting the last of its SoftBank ownership like out from underneath it, that actually might kind of finally alleviate some of this like perpetual selling pressure from overhead that it's been under since SoftBank had started divesting shares. Um, and, you know, obviously SoftBank's not the only owner and the only one selling off shares, but it used to own about a third of the company at, at peak. And now it's just kind of whittled down to almost nothing, if, you know, according to the FT, right? So, um, look, this may or may not be bad for Alibaba share price performance. That's not where the focus is. The real takeaway should be that this is far more of a troubling sign of SoftBank than it is for Alibaba for them to sell off this like once prized asset at lows, right? Because they had their chance to, you know, to, to sell off assets. So they do so using derivatives and all that too. Um, so they have an opportunity to kind of buy shares back, but they, they don't, they, they just book it as a sale, right? It's, it's divesting. Um, and so what does that have to do with broader markets? Well, why is SoftBank selling assets and raising cash? I don't know. Okay. Um, doesn't really necessarily need to be bad either. Okay. Cause it could be for buybacks, for example, but if SoftBank is doing this because it is in trouble, then 
they may continue to to divest other assets in the future that are not Alibaba shares. And as we know, SoftBank is one of the biggest tech investors in the world. So beware of what SoftBank owns via one of their vision funds or the parent company or whatever it is. Just be aware of like, you know, their portfolio. And if you happen to also own what SoftBank owns, then keep a very, very close eye on SoftBank because they may very well one day, soon maybe, just suddenly liquidate a major holding on your position and then depress the price, okay? And by the way, I'm saying this because not necessarily just as a potential risk, but if you do get, you know, downside, um, sharp downside because SoftBank has decided to liquidate a holding of theirs in its entirety that you also hold and share prices drop very sharply, might be a buying opportunity as well. However you want to look at it, it's totally up to you. It's not for me to make a call, but nonetheless, something to be aware of. And then lastly, I just want to mention this. For those of you who haven't seen it, um, look at my Twitter feed uh, at Across the Spread. Uh, first of all, follow me on Twitter at Across the Spread because I make market commentary and all that. But yesterday I posted something that just went like it went most, most viral of anything that I've ever done to my to my shock. Um, but I basically tweeted about Warren Buffett and I gave a, a very like wild theory of why Warren Buffett was actually in Japan earlier this week, which was, as he says, you know, was to meet the five CEOs of the five trading houses, uh, stocks that he owns. I say that's kind of weird. Something smells fishy about that. And there actually might be Bank of Japan, April policy implications uh, that are really behind that. And so you can read all about that. But what I will say about that is Berkshire Hathaway did price JPY bonds today. So that actually did happen. And so Berkshire Hathaway and Warren Buffett are indeed very conscious of the Bank of Japan potentially making borrowing costs much more expensive in the next, you know, in two weeks from now at the BOJ policy meeting. And so they have issued bonds more than the bonds that are maturing also today. Okay, so they, they did the debt roll, but then they did an additional, you know, 100 billion yen or so of uh, new debt issuance. And they did so because apparently they have a view that the Bank of Japan is going to make borrowing costs more expensive, probably near future. Hence doing so two weeks before this potential BOJ meeting. Um, this most uncertain BOJ meeting under this new leadership, okay? And they're doing this in the very last corner of the world in which money is basically as cheap, if not free, as it gets uh, that's still left out there. Okay, so that's it for me. Again, make sure you follow me um, on Twitter at Across the Spread. Uh, make sure that you have your notifications turned on for these episodes because they will be very time-sensitive, especially as we head into the back half of April, in which there's going to be an intense amount of focus on the Bank of Japan meeting that will be on April 28th. And so these next two weeks will be very critical. So keep your eyes and ears out for new episodes of Market Depth. And remember, according to the IMF, 70% of growth will be coming out of Asia. Whether or not that's true, who knows? But you need to pay attention to the region, and that's what I'm here for. So thanks for following. Spread the word. We'll see you next time. Have a great weekend. Thanks.